Landlords may pack their leases with lots of fine print, which is of course not in and of itself that unusual. But rigorous enforcement of the small print is a bit unusual, okay? Typically, you know, we can sneak a goldfish in, even if it says no pets in there, right? But when the landlord's goal is to make life more miserable for the tenant, you better believe that he's going to enforce the, those contracts fastidiously. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Myths about economics die hard. What's worse, such fallacies are destructive to human cooperation and flourishing. In this Acton Lecture Series talk from August 2022, Caleb Fuller explores six economic lies you've been taught and probably believe. Caleb Fuller is an assistant professor of economics at Grove City College and a faculty affiliate of the Program on Economics and Privacy at George Mason University's Scalia Law School. He received his BA in economics from Grove City College and PhD in economics from George Mason University. He has published in journals such as Public Choice, the International Review of Law and Economics, and the Review of Austrian Economics, among others. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for the August installment of the Acton Lecture Series. I'm Noah Gould, and I manage the Alumni Association and student programs here at the Acton Institute. Today, we will have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Caleb Fuller on his new, on his new book, No Free Lunch, Six Economic Lies You've Been Taught and Probably Believe. The format of this event will be a 30-minute lecture followed by Q&A. This event is being recorded and streamed live, so please wait for the microphone to be passed to ask your question. It is my privilege today to introduce Dr. Caleb Fuller. Dr. Fuller is an associate professor of economics at Grove City College and a faculty affiliate of the Program on Economics and Privacy at the George Mason University Scalia Law School. He received his BA in economics from Grove City College and PhD in economics from George Mason University. He has published in journals such as Public Choice, the International Review of Law and Economics, the Review of Austrian Economics, and others. I know Dr. Fuller as not only a wonderful professor and friend, but also one of a very, very select group who knows how to use PowerPoint well. So you're in for a treat today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Fuller. Thank you so much. Thanks. Good afternoon. Thank you for that very gracious introduction, Noah. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with all of you uh, this afternoon. Um, I want to thank uh, Noah Gould, my former student, for inviting me. Um, and I also want to thank uh, the Akin Institute and uh, especially Father Sirico for building such a, a marvelous institution that continues to do so much good in the world. Um, there's really no other institution that I know of like Acton that so effectively combines uh, classical liberal ideals with a robust 
vision of mankind that is rooted ultimately in people as divine image bearers. And so I hope that you can continue this great synthesizing project for years to come here. Um, I heard that some of you were, in fact, a little bit relieved to learn that Acton was serving lunch uh, today. Um, <laughs> though, though I hear that it wasn't free, so uh, you know, no, no economic laws have been violated and I can continue to, uh, to give my talk. <clears throat> Uh, so I want you to imagine the following scene. The year is 1946, and the place is the city of light, Paris. A young French woman in her 20s is going about some daily errands. Her husband, still recovering from what we now call PTSD, uh, he'd been a soldier in the war, is, um, is at work. You see this young woman take out a notebook and jot something down in it. Then she starts down the street. She has a very definitive purpose in mind. Up ahead of her is an elderly man with a cane, and this woman is keeping her distance, but she also has her eyes on this fellow. He enters a cafe, and while he's inside ordering, she takes a seat on a bench outside, pretending to doodle in her notebook, but she's still casting furtive glances at this old man through the window. He exits, coffee in hand, and she begins walking in his direction again. Our man is being followed, and by a most unsuspecting perpetrator. This behavior is odd, but what if I told you that this scene was being played out all over one of Europe's great cities? In fact, other young women are also stalking some of Paris's oldest residents. Furthermore, what if I told you that economic logic contains the key for explaining their behavior? Well, this lunch hour, what I would like to do with you is to really just share my love of economics with you. And specifically, I want to argue that the discipline of economics is a powerful framework for seeing through popular lies that so many people tell about the social world we all inhabit. Now, I, I started with a story, and I promise I'll, I'll finish it momentarily, but I did so because I agree with the Nobel Prize winner Robert Lucas that economists are storytellers. Lucas says this about the economist's craft. He says, quote, I'm not sure whether you will take this as a confession or a boast, but we, that is economists, are basically storytellers. So maybe this is a picture of an economist in the wild. Uh, this is what I got when I Googled economist storyteller. <laughs> uh, so what does it mean, though, for an economist to be a storyteller? Well, what I mean by this description is that economists bring a universal framework to make sense of, to bring... Uh, meaning to patterns that emerge from individuals' real-world behavior. Economists are going to tell stories about why those emergent patterns are the way that they are and why they aren't something else instead. And this storytelling approach, it, it really differs from um, other approaches that both economists and non-economists have used to make sense of the social world. For instance... Economists uh, oftentimes and very justifiably use abstract thought experiments, such as the famous Robinson Crusoe construct that you might be familiar with, um, to communicate the economic point of view. And that tactic can be powerful, but that's not really what I mean by storytelling. Um, in other instances, economists will use sophisticated uh, statistical techniques to ferret out correlations and sometimes causation uh, again, frequently appropriate, often powerful, but not my approach in this, in this text. Likewise, economic storytelling differs from the analysis that non-economists frequently offer. 
So those analyses, they will often make ad hoc appeals to people's preferences or tastes to explain emergent patterns. Um, or sometimes non-economists will appeal to constants of human nature uh, like greed or lack of self-control or cognitive biases to explain the social world. Yet appealing to human constants is a dubious way to explain change and variation, which is what we want to do in the economic storytelling approach. <clears throat> and so what I mean by the economic storytelling approach is that I wish to explain aggregate phenomena, so there's more than one person generating this phenomena, but in a way that is augmented by the disciplining logic that economics brings to the stories that we might tell. Um, <clears throat> now, as I've already hinted, it turns out that everyone, okay, everyone in this room and everyone else, is a storyteller about the social world. And so the only question is not whether people will, will tell stories about the social world, but rather which stories are the best for making sense of complex reality. And economist stories in particular often run contrary to the prevailing uh, conventional wisdom story that the man on the street might tell to make sense of social phenomena. Um, Furthermore, the stories that economists tell <clears throat> often reflect a surprising degree of consensus, okay, especially relative to what many non-economists' conception of economists is. In other words, economic stories have an identifiable flavor and texture to them. There are certain components, which I'll explain soon, that make a story economic. And when it lacks those elements, the story is not usually being told by an economist. <clears throat> Now, I realize this quotation borders on power paragraph rather than PowerPoint, um, but I suppose I'm not as, as pithy as Robert Lucas. I hope I didn't dash your, your dreams of me knowing how to use PowerPoint. No. <laughs> so as I put it in my book, No Free Lunch, economics is an equal opportunity offender. Conservative or liberal, rich or poor, religious or skeptical, you'll find economics mounting serious challenges to many widely held and cherished beliefs. Of course, I don't intend to suggest unanimity among economists any more than it exists among biologists or theologians. But still, consensus on fundamental issues reflects a core economic way of seeing the world. Okay, so that's what I mean when I say that economic stories oftentimes reflect uh, a large degree of consensus among economists. Okay, so why did I, why did I write this uh, book? <clears throat> Well, I actually wrote the book on accident, believe it or not. And you might wonder how in the world someone writes a book on accident. The, the story is that my provost had approached me about doing a, a video series on basic economics for Grove City College, where I worked, where I work, rather. And I uh, suggested a series on uh, economic fallacies. And I then began thinking about the fallacies that my very, very bright and gifted uh, freshman students at Grove City bring with them through no fault of their own, of course, uh, into my Econ 101 course. And, and these fallacies matter because people's beliefs inform how they vote and act as citizens in the world. And bad public policies uh, in turn undermine the human flourishing that organizations such as Acton work so hard to promote. <clears throat> so when I completed this video series script, I sent it to an economist friend who wrote back that I'd written a short, a short book 
which is a thought that had not occurred to me at that point. Um, so I guess that is as close to a free lunch as I've ever gotten. <clears throat> so as I began writing, I envisioned an update to classic works like Frederick Bastiat's Economic Sophisms uh, or Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. So you can see uh, uh, Bastiat uh, pictured there on your left and, and Hazlitt on your right. And those two are the master economic communicators, though. Economics in One Lesson has sold well over one million copies, and uh, Bastiat was Hazlitt's inspiration, so how was I supposed to compete with these legendary writers? What could I contribute that they hadn't already done? Well, thankfully, economics itself tells us that while everyone does not have an absolute advantage, if you're familiar with economic terminology, everyone does have a comparative advantage. So while I could not uh, hope to compete head-to-head with uh, Bastiat and Hazlitt, uh, what I needed to do was identify an angle that I was really you know, least bad at relative to them. Okay, that's the best way to think about comparative advantage. And the angle that I settled on was this storytelling approach that I've alluded to. Because uh, Bastiat and Hazlitt, they really rely primarily on colorful and memorable thought experiments. And what I hoped to do with storytelling was to bring economics down a level of abstraction and into the real uh, world of flesh and blood human interaction through storytelling. <clears throat> okay, so it also occurred to me as I was working on this script that really what unites economic fallacies is a failure to engage in uh, what my mentor economist Pete Betke refers to as persistent and consistent opportunity cost reasoning, hence my book's title, No Free Lunch. This opportunity cost reasoning is the framework that I bring to the stories I tell, and in my mind, it's ultimately what uh, provides a contour, a structure, to economists' analysis of the social world. It's what makes a story uh, fundamentally economic in nature. So what is it? Well, this framework begins with a definition of cost. Um, as another Nobel Prize winning economist, James Buchanan, puts it, cost is that which the decision maker sacrifices or gives up when he makes a choice. Okay, so this is important. Cost, in other words, is, is just a foregone benefit. I don't know if you've ever thought about treating the word cost that way, that cost is just a foregone benefit. Um, cost is also something that only arises in a world of scarcity, in which we cannot have everything that we want. Um, and because we live in that world, Cost is unavoidable even for the wealthiest people. So uh, Bezos, Musk, and Bill Gates are constrained by scarcity, okay? Just like you and I are constrained by scarcity. When they choose to spend time on yacht A, they're foregoing the time uh, to spend on yacht B that they could be doing, okay? Or, or maybe they're foregoing the opportunity to you know, spend time pulling the strings behind global pandemics and wars. And whichever your worldview thinks more likely, I'm not here to adjudicate that for you. <laughs> but what this opportunity cost way of thinking does is give us a pair of eyeglasses, as it were, to see through superficial stories about the social world. By simply keeping our eye on how foregone benefits, okay, that's just my alternative term for costs, change, Economists are going to tell stories that are often at odds with popular narratives about social interaction. And so what I'd like to do over the course of the next couple minutes is just provide a few examples uh, from my book. 
almost all these examples are drawn from the painstaking research of a very uh, large group of other economists through, through time. And what we want to do is show how these opportunity cost eyeglasses allow us to tell stories which refute popular economic errors. And in doing so, I'm not going to use any other concept besides this idea of opportunity cost, okay, of foregone benefits, as I've defined it here, and neither does my book. It's the only thing that my book uses. Okay. So chapter two examines the lie that lunch is free. And of course, no one walks around explicitly saying this. Right? Nobody makes this claim. But people do support policies which rest on the idea that lunch is free. A great example of free lunch thinking is support for rent control, a policy stipulating landlords are prohibited from charging above certain prices for housing. Controlling prices, writes Thomas Sowell, creates the illusion of free lunches. But as I do throughout the book, let's go ahead and use our opportunity cost reasoning coupled with stories to see why rent control does not yield a free lunch, why it is in fact an illusion. Now, if you've taken an Econ 101 class, the first thing that your professor will uh, point out about rent control is that it creates a shortage. Uh, assuming that rent control uh, stipulates a price below what would otherwise prevail on a free housing market. Okay, a shortage is one of those technical sounding economics words. It just means that at current prices, people would like to buy more units of housing than there are units of housing available. Okay, that's all that that means. Um, but notice also that a shortage is not merely a dry blackboard exercise as it is all too often presented to you if you are a student in Econ 101. As I tell my students, uh, rather than getting lost in the supply and demand diagrams, we want to always tell a human interest story okay, about the market that we're looking at. So here's the human interest story that we could tell about rent control. A shortage can involve young Parisian women stocking old Parisian residents, as they did in my story at the beginning, because when there's a shortage, you must be a Johnny on the spot, as it were, to get a room. Okay, so these women from my story that I started out with, they had been taking careful notes on the daily habits and addresses of those whom they were stalking. They would write down little descriptions of the man or woman whom they were following. They would follow this person back to their apartment and jot down the address. And then they would make a phone call to the landlord when the old resident they were stalking failed to show up to his cafe at his usual favorite time. Perhaps he'd passed away and a room was now available. But under a shortage, we know the room won't be open long and hence why we see this very creepy, undignified behavior uh, by these women in 1946. And so their time and everyone's dignity was the cost, that is the foregone benefit, remember that's how I define cost, of rent control in the Parisian episode. Lunch isn't free, in other words. Now, landlords, of course, do not sit idly by as governments reduce the rents that they can earn. They're entrepreneurial instead. In this context, that means they innovate ways to turn a housing shortage to their advantage. And with a long line of people wanting housing, landlords identify other means of charging these would-be tenants. A common strategy is the implementation of so-called key money. Landlords will, will say something like, Sure, you can have legal title to the apartment for $700 a month, like the law says. 
But if you'd ever like to, oh, I don't know, uh, step inside, perhaps, then you'll need to pony up an additional $300 a month for key money. You'll rent the key for $300 a month. And after we account for such key money, we're back to the pre-rent control price of, say, $1,000 a month. The economics in this case has not changed. Only the accounting has changed. Okay? And so the true opportunity cost, again, I'm going to keep emphasizing this, the foregone benefit sacrificed required to obtain an apartment has not changed. All right, there's no free lunch. Now, you may have heard of this, this second example of key money uh, that, I, that I just spoke about. Um, but what gets a little bit less play is that rent control also lowers the costs, that is, the foregone benefits, of landlord discrimination. Okay, so to understand the logic of this, I want to compare how a free market works with that uh, under rent control. So in a free market, prices adjust so that there is no housing shortage. And the reason why this is important for us is because that makes it costly for a bigoted or somehow prejudiced landlord to turn someone away due to their skin color or any other characteristic they have that he dislikes. Okay. The reason why it would be costly is because the apartment unit would then sit empty in the face of such bigotry. Okay. So by behaving as a bigot, the landlord is foregoing rental income that could be his. Okay. So another foregone benefit that we just detected means that we've spotted a cost. But now we want to compare that logic to the situation under rent control. So under rent control, there is a shortage that is a long line of people who would like to rent housing. And so now what happens when the landlord decides to indulge his bigoted taste? Well, this time, it's low cost to do so. It's low cost. When he passes over a prospective tenant for reasons of skin color or gender or religious beliefs or anything else, he can be more confident that there's someone else in line right behind this person who has the preferred characteristics. Okay, so at this point, you're maybe wondering what this little child coloring on the wall is doing. Okay, so a good example of this logic comes from the Swedish economist Sven Reidenfeldt, who examined the Swedish housing market. And what Reidenfeldt shows is that after Sweden imposed rent control, it was almost impossible for couples with children to find a landlord willing to rent to them. Okay, so why is that? Well, children are messy, I'm told. They write on the wall with crayons. They throw spaghetti from their high chairs. And in a free market with no shortage... If you're a landlord, a couple with children might still be your best bet. But when there's a shortage, landlords are always looking to pass over couples with children in favor of childless couples or single people who are less likely to do damage to the unit. So in this case, there's, there's thus no free lunch for the parties that are discriminated against. Okay, In the example I gave, couples with children. Now, in other cases... Municipal governments have been known to throw landlords a bone with what we might call a graduated rent increase scheme, or sometimes it's called rent stabilization. Under this provision, landlords are allowed legally to increase their rent by, say, 10% every time a unit acquires a new tenant. And so we might wonder, okay, have they managed to thread the needle? Is there a free lunch under these somewhat modified circumstances? But of course, it doesn't take a PhD in economics to sort of think through the incentives here. What incentive have you given to landlords? Well, now they're going to declare war on their tenants, right? Um, 
because this policy increases the costs, again, for, foregone benefits by the end, you'll be tired of me saying that, of having a low turnover rate at your apartment. So how do, how do landlords achieve a high turnover rate? That's what they want because every time they get a new tenant, they can raise their rent. So let me mention a, a couple of the most popular techniques. So the first is that landlords <clears throat> may pack their leases with lots of fine print, which is, of course, not in and of itself that unusual. But rigorous enforcement of the small print is a bit unusual, okay? Typically, you know, we can sneak a goldfish in, even if it says no pets in there, right? But when the landlord's goal is to make life more miserable for the tenant, you better believe that he's going to enforce those contracts fastidiously, okay? So, for example, the lease might forbid tenants from washing their cars anywhere on the landlord's property. That's a common one. And... You can imagine what one of the responses might be there. There have been many reports of tenants surreptitiously washing their cars at night by way of flashlight. Okay, so evidently here, tenant sleep is a foregone benefit. Or it's a cost to those tenants. A second, uh, a second popular technique is for landlords to remove apartment amenities. For example, economist Stephen Chung reports that Hong Kong landlords during the 19, 1930s would oftentimes you know, kindly remove the windows from their buildings during monsoon season uh, in an attempt to get tenants to leave. So in other words, sometimes you know, the nominal money price of your lunch does in fact stay the same. It's just that your sandwich gets made out of moldy bread. And the craziest method of all, the craziest technique of all, hopefully there are no um, landlords in the room taking notes on this, but it, this occurs when um, landlords give what economists call side payments. So a landlord approaches the tenant in room 202 and asks if he plays the drums. And he doesn't, but the landlord responds, well, uh, would you learn if I knocked 100 bucks off your rent each month in return for you learning to play the drums? I just have one stipulation. My only stipulation is that you practice each night between 2 and 3 in the morning. So sure enough, we have uh, soon a budding drummer on our hands, and it's not long before the tenants in rooms 202 and 302 are packing their bags for greener pastures, and then the, uh, you know, the commission check is in the mail to our, our budding drummer. So once again, there is no free lunch. Um, notice also that the stories that I've been telling, the stories that economists are going to tell to make sense of these, this sort of litany of bizarre behaviors, that we just walked through, right? The stories that economists tell surely differ from the stories that others might tell about these, uh, the, these sorts of phenomena. So the non-economist is much more likely to simply tell a story which appeals to, say, power differentials between landlord and tenant, or perhaps um, to class conflict between rich and poor in each of the cases I just mentioned. And it's my opinion that the economic storytelling approach provides a much richer framework and much richer tapestry for making sense of these behaviors. Okay, <clears throat> so that's, that's what I discuss in chapter two. Uh, and surely, of course, it was not policymakers' intent to foster a new generation of amateur musicians. So what chapter three does is it examines the lie that intentions guarantee outcomes. And as with chapter two, of course, it's the case that nobody goes around proclaiming this, right? But many people behave 
They behave as if they believe that the virtue of their intentions is sufficient to guarantee the outcomes that they are seeking. So deploying opportunity cost reasoning, once again, we can see through this error by simply keeping our eye on how well-intentioned policies change the foregone benefits, that is costs, that people face. So it's really this simple. When a policy increases the foregone benefits of an activity, or the cost that is, people do less of that thing. And when a policy decreases the foregone benefits of an activity, they do more of that thing, regardless of intentions. So to see how to reason within this this simple framework, consider the following story. In the early 20th century, British colonizers had subdued the Indian subcontinent, but they still faced one uh, lethal pocket of resistance, and that was from the the native cobra population there. Of course, the British were not used to uh, these venomous snakes, and they're slithering through the streets, and you can imagine the British redcoats are jumping rather unceremoniously every time they come across one. And so eventually, the British governor decides he's going to do something about this, and he implements a bounty on cobra tails, one cent per tail that was redeemed, which was actually a pretty payday at the time and and for the place. And so uh, many of you have already thought uh, and um, anticipated what's coming next. Natives began establishing cobra farms in response to this new policy because you have to remember that that the natives are very comfortable with the snake population. Okay, in fact, some historians will write that the native population was so comfortable with the snakes that they wouldn't even mind if they saw a cobra in the corner of one of their their homes. Okay, so they they had a quite, um, you know, familiar relationship with these snakes, and so they'd breed them. They would then sever their tails and then redeem these tails for payment. And again, costs are just foregone benefits. And so what had this policy done? How can we think about this policy in terms of my framework? Well, this policy had increased the costs of not becoming a cobra breeder. Okay, that's the way that economists would think about that. A little weird, right? <clears throat> so, therefore, more people become cobra breeders, and of course, it was, a, it was a good payday while it lasted. Eventually, the British noticed tailless snakes slithering through Delhi, and they're not stupid, right? And so, something's up here, and so they disbanded the program in response, and of course, then the cobra breeders, they then um, released their now worthless financial instruments into the wild, and um, the city's cobra population ballooned. Okay. So intentions don't guarantee outcomes. Now, some of you may have heard, heard that story. This is a little bit less well-known of a story. In 1989, United Airlines Flight 232 crash-landed in Sioux City, Iowa. And this incident grabbed a bunch of media attention for the horrifying footage of this plane really somersaulting down the uh, the, uh, the runway there amidst balls of flame. You can find this on YouTube to this day. Um, and miraculously, um, many aboard survived this crash. About half of the passengers survived, but 112 souls also perished that day, including tragically two infants. And so in response, uh, two well-meaning politicians proposed legislation that would have required all flyers aged two and under to be strapped into a child safety seat of sorts, much like the one that is pictured here on my slide. Because you see, the infants who died had become loose from their mother's arms and they had suffered head trauma as the uh, plane was uh, flying down the runway. And so these seats would prevent that outcome from occurring in the future. 
It would prevent the infants from you know, coming loose from their seats. Except, such thinking ignores how this legislation changes the foregone benefits that people face. Suppose we're considering a mother traveling with an infant, again, like as is pictured on my slide. This law would have increased her costs of flying by 100% because it would require her to purchase two seats instead of just one. And so her foregone benefits associated with flying increase and thus she will fly less often. And when the cost of something rises, people turn to substitutes. Fancy sounding economics word, just another good that allows me to achieve my same goals. And in the case of flying, of course, a substitute is driving. So in the late 1980s, driving was approximately 35 times more likely to get you killed on a mile-per-mile basis than was flying. And of course, the rates for injury were even more lopsided in favor of flying. Okay, so that in a nutshell is why economists uh, began raising a racket and they opposed this bill. Not, of course, because economists are sociopaths. Okay? but because they recognize that intentions don't guarantee outcomes. If this law had been passed, it would have almost certainly have cost infant lives on net. Right? What do the politicians care about? Do they simply care about infants dying on airplanes? No, of course, they want to minimize deaths overall by any means. Right? So empirical evidence for my claim that this law would have increased infant deaths on net it comes from a group of economists at Cornell who estimate that in the year following 9-11, there were 2,300 additional highway fatalities in the United States. Okay, not 2,300 in total. What I mean is 2,300 over and above the typical baseline that we experience annually. And the reason, of course, was because the 9-11 attacks had increased the cost of flying, especially through the subsequent TSA actions that caused there to be long lines at the airports. So once again, intentions do not guarantee outcomes. Let's use this logic one last time. <clears throat> It turns out that, oops, a little finicky here. It turns out that the rates of death by electrocution are not constant across United States states. Rates of death by electrocution. You're most likely to be electrocuted in North Carolina. Okay, so what story would an economist tell about this? Yes, it's good to know. That's right. (laughs) What story could we tell about this? Would an economist suspect you know, all the world's most careless people must have moved to North Carolina at some point? Okay, of course, that's not the story they're going to tell. Economists are going to assume that people are basically people everywhere and always. We'd want to look for something unique about the foregone benefits of hiring a professional electrician in North Carolina. And it turns out that North Carolina has the strictest occupational licensing laws for electricians in the United States. And as a result, the supply of professional electricians is relatively constricted there, which in turn raises their price relative to other states. And so just like potential air travelers, people who need work done on their wiring, they often turn to a cheaper substitute, which in this case turns out to be a YouTube video. And so tragically, tragically, some people lose their lives as a result of this. And so think about how perverse this outcome is from the perspective of politicians who are uh, supporting occupational licensing regulation. What is their intention? Well, I always like to give politicians the benefit of the doubt. And so um, let's go ahead and assume that it is to prevent 
unqualified people messing around with dangerous wires. Let's assume that's their intention. But what is the outcome here? The outcome is more unqualified people messing around with dangerous wires. So intentions don't guarantee outcomes. Which is a nice segue to my final topic. In the absence of licensing or something like it, how do we bring some semblance of order, safety, and quality to markets? The man on the street believes that free markets are wild, chaotic, anything-goes sort of places. That's the story that is often told about free markets. So in chapter 6, I examine the lie that markets are unregulated. Unlike the errors of chapters 2 and 3, you might have noticed that people do regularly proclaim that free markets are unregulated markets. And my contention in this chapter is that understanding opportunity cost reasoning allows you to see that free markets are in fact actually highly regulated markets. Because what I mean by regulation is I mean only a set of penalties and or rewards associated with certain actions. That's all that I mean by this word, penalties and or rewards associated with certain actions. So in chapter 6, I focus on just two aspects of how free markets are regulated markets. First, I want to briefly look at what regulates the temptation to defraud people in markets. And then secondly, I'll conclude by looking at discrimination again, examining each with opportunity cost rooted stories. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're at your favorite restaurant and you order an expensive lobster. After a while, the waiter reemerges with, well, actually, let me ask, does anybody know what this is? That's monkfish. Yeah, of course. The waiter reemerges the plate of monkfish, so-called poor man's lobster, that ugly fellow that's there on the screen. And then he plops the bill down and you owe a hundred dollars. So meanwhile, the restaurant owner, he went and he just bought a $10 monkfish at some local grocer. And so abstracting from other costs, the restaurant owner just made $90 of pure profit on you. So let's think about this for a second. Why is that not, why is that not your typical experience? You know, if they could just make, you know, $90 of pure profit and everybody who comes in and orders lobster, right? Is it because the restaurant knows you'll sue them? Okay, if, if they do this. Okay, obviously, that's not it because the costs of doing so outweigh the benefits. Right? You're not going to sue the restaurant. They bring you a flank steak instead of a filet mignon. You're not going to sue them if they bring you monkfish instead of a lobster. You know this and the restaurant owner knows this too. Rather, what constrains many restaurant owners, okay, besides those that have a conscience perhaps, is that behaving the way I've just described throws away, as it were, your future business. And your future business is a benefit. And so the restaurant sacrifices those future benefits by bringing you the monkfish, which means they incur costs. Because remember, costs and benefits are tightly linked in my thinking. They incur costs by defrauding you. And that is ultimately what constrains many of them. Free markets are regulated, in other words. Uh, But there's a way uh, to make this logic even stronger, uh, I don't know what happened to my screen there. There we go. There we go. We're back. There's a way to make this logic even stronger while bringing it out of the thought experiment realm into the real world of flesh and blood interaction. Have you ever wondered why companies 
spends so much on celebrity endorsements. Are you, and I actually mean you, ask this about yourself, are you more likely to buy a Coke just because you see an ad with Taylor Swift drinking one? Aren't you aware she's only drinking a Coke because Coca-Cola paid Swift? Let me check my notes here. $26 million to do so. Why would Coke spend so much money on her? Are consumers really that weak-willed that they'll just do anything Taylor tells them to do? If if she told them to jump off a bridge, would they do that, right? I mean, we could just keep asking questions about this. Well, here's the story economists tell to make sense of this seemingly strange, seemingly wasteful behavior on the part of Coke. It seems like they're just wasting money when they do this. Here's the story. We all know that getting T-Swift in your ads is very expensive, even if we didn't know the $26 million number off the top of our head. Why is that important? Well, Coca-Cola, just like our lobster restaurant, has an incentive to cut quality, to dilute their product in order to get some short-run gains from doing so. But if they do that, we eventually won't buy from them anymore. And so to show us that they have an incentive to prioritize our long-run business over the short-run, one-time payoff of Coca-Cola dilution, Coke invests in the Taylor Swift ad. Coke will never recoup that investment if they dilute their product and Coke's consumers ditch the company. By spending tens of millions of dollars on Taylor, they are, as it were, tying their own hands. That's how economists think about celebrity endorsements. It's now in Coke's best interest to maintain the quality of their product. And since we all know that, we buy more Coke than if we suspected them of shenanigans. In other words, markets are once again regulated, orderly places. And once again, the story economists tell about celebrity endorsements differs from the story that you would likely receive from a man on the street. Okay, markets also regulate the taste for discrimination. Drawing on work done by Armin Alshin, who's pictured here on my screen, we might we might ask why there were wide disparities between the rates at which Jewish uh, men worked in different industries in the United States in the first part of the 20th century. Alshin is looking around and he notices these vastly different rates of representation across industries by race. And the surprising answer that Alshin gives is that capping a firm's profits lowers the costs associated with discrimination. To see this, Suppose once again that there is a bigoted employer. Suppose that he's looking to hire someone for a job that will pay $50,000 annually. Imagine that he's faced with one non-Jewish applicant who will contribute $55,000 annually in revenue. And then suppose there is a slightly more skilled Jewish applicant who will contribute $60,000 in revenue. In a free market... A racist employer would sacrifice $5,000, okay, so that's a cost, or in other words, foregone benefits, if he indulges his racist tastes. But now suppose that the government confiscates that extra $5,000 the employer would earn from hiring the Jewish man. Why might they confiscate this $5,000? Well, in certain industries, government has historically capped or limited the profits that producers can earn. So you might think of... um, Industries like utilities, okay, insurance, finance, these are common uh, places where this sort of capping occurs. In such a world, our employer 
now no longer foregoes $5,000 of benefits by hiring the less productive worker whom he prefers. Regulation lowers the costs of discrimination, in other words. And once again, this opportunity cost framework makes sense of the empirical results that we actually see. During the mid-20th century in the United States, there were twice as many Jews working in other industries relative to utilities, finance, and insurance, which means that in those other industries, this uh, profit and loss system was regulating the temptation to engage in discriminatory behavior. So once again, we see that markets are, in fact, great regulators. And notice also for the final time that the story an economist would tell here differs markedly from the man on the street who would likely, if they were to see these disparities in racial representation, they would either appeal to employers, say, being more racist in some industries as opposed to others, which is not super compelling to an economist, or they might appeal to the tastes of Jewish folks themselves. Once again, not compelling as a story to economists because this latter explanation hardly makes any sense at all when we consider how Jewish people dominated finance in other times and places. I want to end my uh, talk here with a a bold claim. It's my view that all economic lies ultimately run aground on the rocky shoals of opportunity cost reasoning. And so I therefore urge you to test the opportunity cost approach on your favorite pet peeve economic fallacies. Everyone has one. And for those of you that are passionate, as I am, about communicating the basics of economics, I want to uh, urge a little opportunity cost reasoning on your own personal approach. You might ask yourself, what is my economics communication comparative advantage? Perhaps it is thought experiments. Perhaps it is making sense of large amounts of data. Perhaps it is telling stories, as I have attempted to do here this afternoon. But the thing that makes it economic is to root your approach in the opportunity cost way of thinking. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your time, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Um, Thank you. What would you say is the biggest, when you think about the Econ 101, college freshmen and sophomores, et cetera, what's the biggest uh, economic fallacy uh, that you see? And also maybe what's the most dangerous? And just to make it harder, how do we change that? Great questions. Um, yeah, so I was going to respond by saying it depends a little bit on what you mean by, by biggest, but then you, I guess, clarified. I'm going to take biggest to mean most common, uh, and then I'll talk about destructive. Um, so the most common <clears throat> is uh, actually one that I didn't discuss here today with you all, but I do discuss in two different chapters in the book. I devote two chapters to it because it is so uh, pervasive. And that is <clears throat> just the idea that there's, not a, there's, there's often not an intuition that voluntary exchange is mutually beneficial. So when people engage in a, in a trade where there's no violence or the threat of violence, that both parties are only doing so because they anticipate gaining from that. And so you can see um, this fallacy play out uh, when people think that you know, a landlord, for example, to go back to my rent control stuff, is exploiting them. So you can kind of see it on that very micro level, but then you can, where you see it even more commonly is in discussions of, say, international trade. Because economists have emphasized for 250, 300 years that that basic logic of the mutuality of benefit that accrues to exchange doesn't somehow change when we draw a political 
boundary, okay, when people are exchanging across that. And so I would say that's probably the most common, commonly held one that I see. And, you know, maybe that's something that would change if you were to slice it by different generations. I'm not sure. Um, in terms of the most destructive, the most destructive may be um, the fallacy that I also did not talk about today, which is uh, the broken window fallacy, which I discuss in, in chapter one. This is probably the most famous fallacy in the history of, of economics. Uh, and it <clears throat> basically um, is sort of the uh, story that we, that we use to explain why it is the opportunity cost reasoning is, is so important. Um, and the reason I say it's the most destructive is because you've encountered the broken window fallacy if you've ever heard someone make the claim that uh, a natural disaster such as a hurricane will somehow stimulate uh, an economy, right? Or if you've heard the uh, somewhat more sophisticated but still fallacious idea that war will stimulate the economy. And the most famous example of that is the mistaken idea that World War II is what ended the Great Depression. And so to the extent that people find you know, these imaginary silver linings in humankind's most destructive activity, which is war, all right? And I'm not sort of not taking a position on, you know, when it's justified and that sort of thing, right? But it, from an economic perspective, it is highly destructive. And so that's probably the most destructive. The ideas about trade, while also destructive, maybe not quite as much, but are, but are very prevalent among my students. Did I hit on all of your... Oh, how do we change them? Oh, gosh, that's the, that's the million-dollar one. Yeah, um, well, I mean, that's, that's sort of why I ended the way that I did. And I know that probably many of the people in this room, I'm sure this is not a representative audience. I'm sure none of you actually held any of these fallacies before you came in, right? Um, <clears throat> hopefully you've got some new examples or maybe new stories to communicate to your friends who may, who may hold some of these. And so I would just say, yeah, think, think about how you can be a, you know, a communicator of these ideas if you are passionate about them like I am. I don't know any better, better way than to be sort of an ambassador for them. <clears throat> Yes, sir. This gentleman here. Hi. Thank you so much for that talk. Uh, my name is Dylan. I work here at Acton. Um, I was curious, to what extent does elasticity uh, affect this analysis? So in, in particular, uh, the one about rent control, which I agree is bad um, for all the reasons uh, you outlined. Um, there's a supply side as well. Yes. Um, and right now, for example, uh, we have a housing shortage, and it's it's literally a shortage. Like, we need to build more houses, and until very recently, lumber prices were inflated due to tariffs and some other uh, supply chain issues, that sort of thing. Um, but demand for housing, to some degree, is inelastic to the extent that everybody needs a place to live. Um, and so if there isn't enough supply, that demand is, you know, so I, that's... What I would see is maybe, you know, the devil's advocate, you know, defense of uh, a rent control policy. Um, and how would you, you know, how does that factor into to these sorts of things that, yeah, it's bad. It has all these bad effects. Um, but sometimes the problem isn't actually coming from the policy. The policy is just maybe, you know, a really bad um, response to it. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for that question. So there are several parts there. and I'll try to kind of take them one at a time. Um, you asked about elasticity, which is just a sort of fancy economics word for the sensitivity that people have to when a price changes. So, you know, like we all know that, you know, if you go to the grocery store and tomatoes are twice as high as you expected, you'll, pro you'll buy less tomatoes. That's the law of demand. And elasticity is just a question about how, how many fewer tomatoes will you buy. Okay. Um, and it turns out that <clears throat> the uh, price elasticity of demand for housing is actually higher than you might expect. And the reason for that is because um, people can make adjustments 
on a whole lot of margins. So for example, when the price of housing rises, <clears throat> what we see is we see people you know, moving in with their, their uh, former college roommate when they graduate from college. We see people moving back in with their parents. We see elderly folks moving in with their adult children. Um, we see all sorts of other uh, uh, arrangements. Um, in New York City, uh, many, many years ago, uh, there was there were the sort of these, you know, kind of communal, almost kind of hippie um, arrangements, okay, that people were forming uh, as a result of rent control and other things, okay? Um, another uh, uh, margin of adjustment that people make is they'll change where it is that they live. So instead of living, you know, close to their workplace in an urban center, they'll move out towards the suburbs and they'll take the hit from the commute. So I, I raise all those points just to say that the, the price elasticity of demand for housing might be a little bit more... Um, or it might be higher than you were thinking just from your, you know, good intuition, which is, well, of course, everyone, you know, is trying to find housing, right? Um, the, to, to your, I think, more substantive point there, though, um, I would say that, you know, rent control, what it does is it, it actually piles on to the, all the other land use regulations that we're seeing in place. So um, some of you may know that over the last several decades in the United States, there's been a proliferation of land use regulations, which is basically just you know, a bunch of red tape surrounding your ability to develop a plot of land, either for commercial or for residential purposes. And that constricts the supply of housing, increases uh, the price of housing. And so I think, if I'm understanding your question correctly, you're, you're saying, well, could we use you know, rent control as a Band-Aid on these already other bad underlying uh, housing policies? And I would say, no, because one of the other things that rent control does, which I didn't dis- have time to discuss here, is that it, it lowers the rate of return from investing in housing. And so rent control is typically applied to low-income housing uh, because those that are, are uh, you know, imposing it, operating in sort of the intentions guarantee outcomes framework, are saying, well, of course, you know, it's the poor that need affordable housing. We're not going to impose rent control on luxury apartments in Manhattan, but what you do when you put rent control on low-income housing is you lower the rate of return to investing in the low-income housing. The rate of return for investing in high-income luxury apartments, condominiums, is increased in relative terms. So what you see is some developers shifting out of the low-income housing and into this. So one of the things that rent control does is it serves as a subsidy to wealthy Manhattanites, for example. The price of their housing is lower than it would be otherwise in the absence of rent control. So no, I don't see it as, I don't see it as somehow you know, counteracting the impact of these other regulations. I actually see it as piling on top of, in the long run, that stock of low-income housing just decays further. I have a question. I know a lot of people who behave um, personally as though they understand the fallacies of these laws, these principles, but when they go to vote, they, they behave in a different way. Do you have any stories that can help us deal with people that, when we're talking with people that, that uh, exemplify that? Yes, actually. I think it depends a little bit on what exactly you're looking for, what exactly you're shopping for there. Um, but if you're simply asking... Are you asking, well, why did they talk such a good game, but when they get in the voting booth, they don't follow up? Is that kind of what you're asking? How do we, how do we, how do we understand that? Yeah, okay, so how do we, great, great question. So um, that's a very real phenomenon. Economists talk about that, that phenomenon, and it's actually a part of a larger group of phenomenon that you can also see in politicians themselves, right? So <clears throat> politicians' rhetoric is, uh, you know, universally 
good in terms of the ends they're trying to achieve. And many politicians have rhetoric where the um, rhetoric pertaining to the means of how to achieve those ends is also very good. And then you know, people are perennially disappointed when they actually get in office. And this is something called a principal agent problem, that basically they do one thing to get elected, and then once they're there, I mean, we can't punish them for four years or whatever, right? But um, to your point about voters, there's a really simple way to think about this, which is just that you know, when you go into a grocery store uh, and you are going to buy bananas, you know that the full costs and benefits of those bananas are going to accrue to you or to members of your household, let's say, okay? So you're very careful about, you know, the bananas that you select. You don't select the rotten ones. You don't select the ones that won't be green for, or, you know, won't be ripe for three years and all this, right? You're very, very particular about which bananas you select because the costs and benefits of those bananas fall on you. And when you walk into a voting booth, however, you're not faced with the same sort of situation that you're faced with at the grocery store. You can go in there behind the little curtain, pull the lever for whoever, no one actually knows who you're pulling the lever, so you're not maybe even gonna suffer any reputational harms. You can walk outside and tell everyone you voted for X when you really voted for Y inside, right? You can um, uh, you know, vote for more tariffs because that makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. And the key thing is that you, your vote or lack thereof is not going to be the determinant for whether we get tariffs in a, in a country of 325 million people, okay? And so it's very, very low cost for you to indulge in sort of you know, frivolous behavior, if you like, behind the voting booth curtain, where it would actually be very costly for you to engage in you know, your grocery shopping activity in the same sort of flippant manner. I'll just toss whatever I want into my cart with my eyes closed, right? Which is essentially what you're doing when you go to the voting booth. <clears throat> yes, sir. Hello. Um, Hi. I want to ask your opinion about something. Uh, thank you very much for, I, I find it really funny and interesting that uh, I'm here, I attended this no free lunch talk and do that actually paid $15 for my lunch. Yes. So, which, is, was, which was great by the way. Oh great. So I completely agree with you that there is no free lunch. Uh, but I want, I want to ask your opinion about this ongoing debate about whether there is or no free lunch. Uh, why is it? I think uh, Milton Friedman mentioned the first time there was no free lunch like 60 years ago and yeah. we're still here today and you're writing another book about this topic. Yeah. <laughs> so is it because people are confused about the meaning of the word free? Because it seems to me that the word free can be very confusing and can actually mean two completely different yes. things. So one meaning of free is the way it's understood here at, at Acton, that you're free, meaning that there is no coercion. Okay, but... Um, when we say free lunch or free healthcare or free public transportation, that free has exactly the opposite meaning because it actually implies that there is coercion in form of taxation sure. that somebody else's. So can it be that people are confused about the meaning of the word free and can this lead to this ongoing debate? And what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So there is, there is a lot of semantic conceptual confusion around ideas like liberty, freedom, these sorts of things, right? Um, you know, when, when economists, strictly as economists, use this word, you're right that free is meant to suggest that <clears throat> no other resources have to be sacrificed in order to achieve some goal. That, that's what makes something free in the economic sense. So there are some things that are free, uh, like air in this room. All right, but by, by pointing that out, I mean, I, I show you just how limited and unusual those sorts of things in human experience are. But then... Um, 
you know, when a f political philosopher uses this term, that's when things can get a little bit fuzzier because, you know, usually they mean it in a, like a negative liberty sort of sense, which is the freedom from coercion that you, uh, that you meant. But then there are other political philosophers and then even some economists, say like Amartya Sen, who tend to use the word in a more positive sense that I have freedom to do something. And in my view, a better word there would be like power or ability. I have the ability to do something. I don't feel as if I'm not free as a human because I can't flap my arms and fly. Of course, I lack the ability or lack the power to do so, but I still think of myself as being you know, a, free, a free agent. So yes, I mean, to kind of circle back to your, to your first question, um, there is a lot of conceptual confusion. There is a lot of semantic confusion. Maybe somebody could write a short little book just kind of spelling, spelling all that out. Maybe it could be you. That'd be great. I think that's... So I just have a follow-up. If I... Oh, right here. I just have a follow-up, yes, yes. uh, something I was just thinking about, but uh, I'm a teacher and I do teach economics, and, but one of the things, the way I address this issue is that no such thing as free is uh, there's no, everything costs somebody something. And so there's no, no free lunch, there's just a subsidized lunch. And so when we want something for free, we're just asking somebody else to pay for what we want. So Yes, uh, absolutely. I, that's sorry a, to co-opt your... No, that's, that is com perfectly consistent with everything here, and I think it's a great place to, to end as well. My other question, though, if I may, sure. was um, Thomas Sowell says that um, there are no perfect solutions, only trade-offs. Yes, yep. Is that one of your fallacies that is addressed, or, am I, or you just address it in a different way over opportunity cost? I don't separate that out as, it, as its own separate, distinct fallacy. I think it's sort of implicit ultimately, and everything else that I talk about in the book. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have... As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.